We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy us all. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just wanna say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Welcome to the Sorted Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 1946, The Big Sleep, written by William Faulkner, Lee Brackett, and Jules Firthman, and directed by the great Howard Hawks. Joining me to talk about this great movie is uh, Ricky D. What's up, Patrick? And of course, we also have Simon Howell. Hello. Um, all right, so I picked this movie, Big Sleep. This is the Bogart and Bacall version, of course, from 1946. Its 75th anniversary is happening this year. That was more or less the reason that I picked this movie. I also just really like it. I like these old style, you know, these old sort of cop crime noir-ish pictures. I don't know if I'd really call this a super noir movie. It's just more of a crime movie, uh, just a detective story. But I think it's a good one. It's got a lot of good, fun dialogue, even if it does have a very, very confusing plot, <laughs> which we are going to get into. Uh, but before we do that, let's first hear a clip from The Big Sleep. Can I help you, sir? Oh, yeah. I'm looking for a good mystery on something off the beaten track like the Maldives Falcon. Oh, that was a fascinating story. But here's one that has everything the Falcon had and more. It's Raymond Chandler's latest bestseller, The Big Sleep. What a picture that'll make. Mind if I look at it? Huh. Sometimes I wonder what strange fate brought me out of the storm to that house that stood alone in the shadows. As I probed into its mysteries, every clue told me a different story. But each had the same ending, murder. Every instinct warned me to beware that something more dangerous, more deadly than I'd ever known before was in that room. And suddenly, I like that. I'd like more.
All right, that was a clip from 1946's The Big Sleep. Um, okay, guys, so again, I really like this movie. Uh, there are two versions of it, though, which I'm not sure if everybody's aware of. There is a 1945 pre-release version and a 1946 regular version, that what, the theatrical release that most people have seen. Uh, one of them is very confusing. One of them is far less so, I would say. Um, but there are sacrifices to be made in both since the running time is roughly the same. Rick, have you seen both versions? I have seen the two versions. Like you said, one is far more confusing. And we should mention that this movie was made in 1944, released two years later. There was a ton of reshoots. Mostly the reshoots were done because they wanted more of Lauren Bacall and less of the rest of the female co-stars who were overshadowing her performance. But you are going to have to explain the actual plot of the film because it was made, like I said, in 1944 during the Hayes Code. And the Hayes Code prevented filmmakers from doing specific things on camera. So there's a lot of things that are confusing about the film. And unless you've read the book and or someone told you what exactly is going on, you wouldn't really understand the movie. And there's one particular thing in the movie that even the author Raymond Chandler doesn't understand. So or didn't understand. Yes. Now, is this about who shot who? Well, it's about chauffeur, who killed yeah. a certain character, uh, a chauffeur. And nobody knows. And that's the only part of this movie that I cannot answer the question as to who killed him because even the author doesn't know and is never explicitly stated. However, having watched both versions in preparation for this, I can say that the pre-release version cleans, clears pretty much everything up. They have a couple exposition dumps that tell you exactly what's going on. And they're not even terrible expedition dumps. I actually enjoy that version more than the, the uh, regular one. I would say that the the regular one, as we're going to call, I mean, we're just generally going to be talking, I think, about the 1946 version, uh, because yeah. that's the version most people will have seen that is famously confusing. I would say it is the Hayes Code stuff does add to the confusion, but I think it's also just it's a very dense it's 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 a it's a character dense plot. Like it's sort of like two Elmore Leonard stories stapled together. Uh, that like that's that's the number of like bumbling criminals and dizzy dames you have running. There's so many dames in this movie. Oh my god, lots <laughs> of dames. So and Marlo Marlo wants to make it with all of them. Um, and they all want to. They almost all want to make it with Marlo too. I would say I, it's I the reverse. Actually, I would say that every girl has the hots for Humphrey Bogart's character, yeah, or at least Marlo. pretends to for the sake of a of a sham. And definitely some of them he does make it with, including a bookstore clerk. Um, and potentially, possibly a cab driver. Yeah, probably at some point in time. I, I yeah. think there are a lot of things, as with movies in this area, you, ha you have to bring adult sensibilities to them to actually get the full richness of it, of it. And those sorts of elements are part of it. Like, it's pretty clear that that Bogart, or sorry, that Philip Marlowe, the character he's playing, a detective, has a nooner with this with this bookstore clerk. And but none of that is shown. It's just very implicit, right? You just have to pick it up as an adult. You sort of know what's going on here with flirtations, and same. That's the same thing with some of the illicit activities that are happening here. The the gambling is probably the most notable one, but there are lots of rackets going on here, and there are lots of there are crimes upon crimes and blackmails upon blackmails, and just duplicity everywhere. And it sort of is like a chain reaction. As to the original one, I think most people, what they're confused by is what started this all. There's a reason to be confused, though. Like I said, like, for example, just an example, there's a bookstore which he goes to visit. And when he's at the bookstore, he sort of changes his appearance and his voice. And I never picked up on this because apparently he's trying to make himself appear and seem and sound more effeminate because 
if you've read the book, you would know that the bookstore is dealing pornography, specifically homosexual pornography. But watching a movie, you wouldn't know this. So you know there's something happening at the bookstore, something sorted, but you don't know exactly what's happening. For all you know, maybe they're selling booze under the counter. Sure, and I don't think that's necessarily the confusing part of the movie, though, because you can roll with that. You know that something's going on, and you don't even know that it's necessarily happening at the bookstore. You just know that the bookstore guy is involved with something because he was murdered um, doing this stuff. So you know that he's blackmailing somebody. You know right off the bat that the bookstore man is blackmailing Marlowe's client. So that's not confusing. So you know that the bookstore guy is bad. It doesn't really matter if he's doing anything illegal there. You know it's just kind of a front for whatever else side activities that he's yeah. doing. And then you also know that he was engaged in pornography because Marlo follows him to the house and he finds the whole photo set up and the girl is there who's been drugged. And, um, you know, they they obviously have her posed and then there's reference to photos later on. So the you know two things. You know, one, that he was involved in blackmail and two, that he was, he was dealing in pornography. Whether or not that happened out of his store... Um, it's not really relevant to the movie's story, although, yes, that was in yeah. the, the book. I mean, the most, the easiest way to explain this movie to someone who hasn't seen it is to forget about the plot and just say to them, this movie is a ser- is really, this is how I watched this film. This is how I enjoyed it. I didn't really, I, I didn't pay too much attention to the plot after a while, to be honest, because it does get so convoluted and there are so many characters. I really enjoyed the movie just kind of as a series of scenes, like a series of vignettes of uh of marlo going around basically it's a long series of meetings that philip marlo takes with people that's what 95 percent of the movie is and yes. generally speaking if they're men they will die <laughs> and uh <laughs> if they're women they'll kind of stand aside for a while and let some stuff happen with a few notable exceptions but but i still think that the reason why something like for example what's happening at the bookstore can make it more confusing is because you don't really know the relation, the relationship between those two men, and you don't really know what exactly is going on and how it relates to everyone else in a movie. So you might think, for example, one of the ladies was murdered and or involved in some crime. But if you knew that these two dudes were having an affair, then you might not link that lady to them. Say that, for example, she's having an affair with that guy because clearly she wouldn't because he's like gay and he's having an affair with the younger dude. And you know what I mean? Like there's things about it. Like if you if you've read the book, you can maybe and I'm using the word maybe make sense of the plot. But I still think the plot makes no sense because, like you said, the actual author of the book, Raymond Chandler, says he doesn't even know who murdered one of the characters. He thinks it's the chauffeur or is well, it the chauffeur okay, that gets no. murdered? I'm so confused okay. already. So let me explain. <laughs> like, I will say this. If you watch the pre-release version, which okay, we're not, we're not going to talk about because everybody didn't see it. But I, I just want to make this clear. You will know exactly who's, who is – Uh, what everybody's relationship is to each other and how all this started. The only thing you won't know is how the chauffeur, a character we never see ever. uh, We just see his car speeding away and he's only talked about. We'll never know how, who, if somebody killed him or if he killed himself, that was always the big debate. That's the only thing. It's such a minor part of the story that it's, it's also so it's very irrelevant. I'm still going to disagree with you. I think that if you watch the movie for the first time, unless you're really, really paying 
uh, close attention and you're really good at piecing together these plots, I think you're going to be confused. I think no, they spell it out for you, Rick. They literally say it, there's a meeting at the DA's office in the version in the other version where they spell it out. They say this. So this is what happened. This person did this. Then this person did that. Then this person did this. And this person was doing this with that person. They spell the whole thing out for you. You will not be at nearly as confused if you watch that version. Um, it, but if you it, watch again, this version, I, you I, I this version maybe, does not spell maybe anything. You're not confused, but I'm saying I was fucking confused, and everyone I know who's seen this movie is really super confused. So to say that you won't be confused is not actually correct because no, I'm telling you, you, I will, you, I am, I'm, I was still am completely confused. You watched the the regular version. Though, I right? watched the both versions version. this week. You did, yes. Oh, and you didn't understand what was going on. There's so many characters. There's so much. I, I I started to understand the movie after listening to a podcast about the movie. And the podcast was really more about the actual novel, which therefore started explaining who these characters are and how they're related and who killed who. And then it started to make sense. Like I was I was joking around on Slack, but not really. I was saying like, you know, for a movie that was filmed during the Hayes Code era, you're like one of the rules about the Hayes Code era was like your characters, if they commit murder, they can't get away with murder at the end of the film. But yet there's yeah. like multiple ca- characters here, including Humphrey Bogart and Martha Vickers, who do get away with murder, you know, at the end of the movie. No, nobody does. Nobody gets away with murder in this movie. You're telling me Philip Marlowe doesn't get away with murder. He he doesn't murder anybody. Yes, he does. He kills somebody, but but there's a difference between a good guy killing somebody, which you were totally allowed to do. Uh, Marlowe is clearly the hero, and you were allowed to kill a bad person. A hero could kill a bad person. That's not murder. And and Martha Vickers' character, who is the younger sister, she gets sent off to an insane asylum at the end of the movie. Or a she convent. Does not, it's not actually. It's clear. not. It's we're not actually sure if it's an no, insane asylum. He straight up says there are places for people like her. Hopefully, they can fix her. That yeah. she's clearly being sent to an asylum. <laughs> like he doesn't. They they make no bones about it. It's not like oh, you got to send her away on a vacation. He says you got to send her away. There are places for people like her. Hopefully, they can fix her. I don't want to spend an hour arguing about if the movie is no, confusing or not, because but, I think it's confusing. That's all that matters. But the sure. point is, for me, the reason why I'm not hot on this movie is because it's one of those movies that's considered one of the greatest film noirs. And I think it's overrated because, for me, I don't actually like the, the script. Like, I think the dialogue is sharp and it's it's got that witty banter that you would expect from a Raymond Chandler novel. And it's also written by guys like William Faulkner, you know, and a bunch of other writers, like a ton of writers who stepped in to help freshen up the script and make it a lot more sharp and punchy and i love the dialogue and i love the performances from all of the women which we'll get to eventually in this podcast but i don't like the movie i don't like the i mean, sorry i don't like the script because i do find the story to be confusing and um if anything i would say if you haven't seen this movie the best modern day example i can throw out is the big lebowski the big lebowski is like the big sleep of the 90s i think it was released in the 90s right yeah 90s. yeah like that movie like there's a lot there's a lot of things about the movie that don't really make sense or there's a lot of characters that aren't exactly explained and there's a lot going on and it is like a film noir it is like a detective story and i feel like that's like when i watch a big sleep i think of the big lebowski i like the big lebowski way more but to me it's like i enjoy the performances and the dialogue I, I think for me, um, I love noir. To me, this definitely counts as noir, despite uh, some of Patrick's protestations. Um, this doesn't have some of my favorite qualities of my favorite noirs. 
Um, like for instance, it's not very taut. It's kind of it's it's kind of a rambling plot, if you ask me. At almost two hours, it's just I like my noirs a little tight. I mean, you 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 sit down to watch Detour and it's sixty nine minutes long, and you're like, hell yeah, um, you know this this is just not that tight. It's like it looks good. Like it's a Howard Hawks film. It looks solid. He, 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 it looks solid. He knows how to frame his shots. The compositions are great, and the staging of each of each uh, scene is fantastic. But yeah. it doesn't have that typical noir feel. But I still do think it qualifies as a noir, guaranteed. Yeah. I, I it's think tough he... just because Marlowe's not really a bad guy. Marlowe's not that. Uh, when you think about noir, even your heroes are supposed to be sort of anti-heroes and marlo really Indeed. is a good guy well that's the that's the main reason i think that's the what sort of holds the movie back for me besides the fact that it's uh, quite rambling and needlessly sort of crammed with stuff as much as as much fun as it's having with all that stuff and as fun as it is to watch a lot of the time is that marlo is like you said a relatively uncomplicated good guy he's also a, a, until a, a short stretch of the final act pretty much uh unfazed and in control for a lot more of the story than you'd perhaps expect a noir protagonist to be, um, which is uh, which does allow for some uh, for some really for a lot of fun stuff and a lot of fun dialogue and a lot of quotable stuff. But it does kind of it doesn't it, it's not a very tense film. Uh, there's not a lot of tension and there's very little action. It really is uh, very dialogue driven. Yeah. There, there um, are scenes where someone's holding a gun to Philip Marlowe and he's just standing there as if he's not even worried. <laughs> yeah. And so like such an alpha. Yeah. Like yeah. If you're he's, gonna alleviate, he's not worried. He's not at all. So if you're going to alleviate the tension and suspense from like a film noir, it's kind of like, you know, you have to knock some points from the movie. Like I wouldn't go so far as to say it's as good as like some of the best noirs. It's still a great movie. Don't get me wrong. I just don't want to come on the podcast and say it's like a masterpiece, which is what I keep hearing people tell me because I disagree. I don't think it's even close to being a masterpiece. I just think the thing about this movie is it all boils down to the actors because as good as the dialogue is, if you replaced any one of these actors with anyone else, you might have a lesser movie like Humphrey Bogart is awesome in this film. Lauren Bacall is incredible. Iconic. Martha Vickers is scene stealing in this film dorothy malone is iconic like the list goes on and on and on it's an incredible cast at the top uh, at the top of their game and i think that's what i enjoy about the movie it's the performances from the cast high five to uh dorothy malone by the way who just passed away like last year yeah Oh, is that right wow she plays the bookshop uh worker for anyone who's not familiar with her she gets to have she gets to have a quickie with with uh with bogey and then outlive him by like 50 Ooh, years we could assume <laughs> maybe they went in the back to play D who knows maybe yeah. i don't know they could have just been drinking his his whiskey out of his flask so but i l- doubt it let me ask you a question who did carmen kill she killed sean regan who was the uh, sort of the irish friend of the old man that hires marlo in the very beginning and who did yes, vivian and, uh, kill Vivian killed nobody. She nobody. tried to take the blame for it because she was trying to protect Carmen. The she tries to take the blame for killing the Irish man because Carmen's her sister and she wants to protect her. That's Indeed. right. The um another sort of bizarre quirk of this movie is that uh, we have a character who is named roughly I don't know two hundred times, but never appears in the film because he's dead before the narrative starts. Sean Regan, yeah, indeed. Which is just like such a weird choice. Who's the really good-looking young? gay guy oh his name yeah 
Oh man! Uh, oh god, he he he's on for a second. He looks very menacing, right? That guy. Mm-hmm. I just uh, want to know who the actor is, but I don't know his name in the movie, so I I don't know who the actor is. Tommy Rafferty. As, Carol Lundgren as is Carol. his name. Yeah. His name is Carol. That's Tommy the character's Rafferty name is Carol. Not, yeah. Yeah. He, this guy doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. Damn. Nope. <laughs> Uh, okay, so yeah, I, I mean, there's a. I'm kind of with you guys that I don't consider this movie to necessarily be a masterpiece, especially the regular version. I'm going to state right off the bat that I do like the pre-release version better, even though it does have less scenes with Bogart and Bacall. And their scenes are really good together. But because I like to be able to follow a movie, I like the 1945 version better, even though most people seem to, for some reason, think the 46 is better just because of the dialogue. Uh, I think that the 45 has a good mixture of both dialogue and everything. I wouldn't call it like a great masterpiece. I don't, and again, I, I sort of quibble with it even being called a noir. I don't even want to put it there. I just think it's a detective movie. It's got too much humor, and I don't know. There's a big smirk on this movie's face throughout the entire time through. And well, would you call the Maltese Falcon a film noir? Because to me, this character is more of a noir protagonist than Sam Spade. Yeah, I don't think that Maltese Falcon is either. I think it's just a little bit different of a... Again, noir wasn't supposed to be like any detective movie. Noirs are just... They're supposed to be you know black-hearted people, generally. Well, and also there's there's like the visual component too. Like again, the Dutch yes. angles, the shadows, the specific this lighting. Have that. No, well, it doesn't. But I it still... doesn't. But it does have you know fog lit uh, well, nights, and it has lots of sordid activity. It's got the well, Casablanca had that. You know, I mean the, that's not a noir. It's just that like that's just a style of the period, and and I think like sure. you know Howard Hawks is you can find some stuff in in his the thing from another world too, or but I, I just I don't, don't think that I... noir was originally named for the characters and somewhat for the look but also for the characters sure how they are evil i have a pretty loose spectrum for what counts as noir and i'm perfectly happy to call things noirish even if they don't totally qualify and to me this is safely within the noirish wheelhouse at least yeah i agree yeah i mean i just don't want people to think that like if you haven't seen this movie don't go in expecting some of the more richer noirs that you may no. have seen. This is just has a lighter feel than that. This yeah, is not this a heavy is, movie. Despite this is the, not, uh, the this is not in a lonely place or anything. Although no, everyone the, should watch that movie. There is a lot of, like I said, lurid subject matter in this. I mean, you are dealing yeah. with drugs, murder, pro, uh, not prostitution, but pornography, gambling, uh, you know, pretty much every vice that any human being has ever had. Like the people are doing those things in this movie. And there's just a lot of double dealing and, and dirty backhanded stuff. Right. Um, but but the movie and... but the movie is a straight up detective story from start to finish like to to just label it a crime film you know a crime film could just be a movie where there's like a car chase and maybe one scene where someone's trying to play like a detective and trying to figure out something but this movie from 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 start to finish like we're introduced to Philip Marlowe in that iconic opening scene and there's a case and he's confused just as confused as us the audience in fact it kind of works because he's so confused at one point in time that he's trying to figure out why they think that he's trying to like uncover the truth about something, which he's not actually trying to do because he's like trying to do something else. And then that's when he starts really investigating different aspects of all of these characters and things that are happening. So when the movie starts, he's really confused as to what exactly he's looking for. Yes. And I feel like if we want, we could just really quickly lay the roadmap of the, the events that take place. <laughs> sure. So that we're all the Before same. you like, do this, Simon, yeah. am I the yeah. only one that's idiotic? Were you confused watching this movie? Well, I only watched the 46 cut and having seen it before, 
Um, to be honest, I was prepared for the plot to be a little confusing, so I took notes while I was watching, and uh, let me tell you, I was still a little bit confused about a couple of things. I, I watched the 46 version first, and I, I could not have told you what was going on. I found myself getting lost constantly. And then a couple I, days later, I watched the 45 version. It's one of those I, movies where, like, the moment it's over, if someone asked you immediately afterwards, maybe you could explain most of the plot. But, like, an hour later, you'd be like, I don't know, man. It, this was happening, and then this was happening. It's tangled, for sure. I, I, but the 45 version cleared everything up for me. I, I was like, oh, I see. The, the order of events is what I had a problem with. And uh, I, now it's sort of more etched. Now it's on a more solid foundation in my brain. Now I yeah. can actually recall what happened during all this. And I can see everybody's motivation because that's the big problem. When you watch the 46 version, you're like, why is everybody doing everything? It's yeah. not so much what they're doing, but why? Yeah. I, I think, I think it starts to get really tangled when, uh, when a full on two named character, Harry Jones uh, yeah. shows up, like, I don't know. 95 minutes into the movie and introduces himself and you're like okay who's this mother wait are you talking about alicia cook jr <laughs> yeah oh yeah. my god yeah when he showed up i was like what the hell is who's going on? this guy i mean it's a great performance yeah. but you, you but still are like oh god damn it. before patrick recites the entire plot for us i just want to quickly mention that <laughs> ray chandler did say that it's not so important as to who killed who but why yes. like why did yeah. this person get killed right and the only the only one we don't know. So okay, this is what happens. So before the movie even starts, this uh, younger daughter of this uh, whatever rich guy has murdered a sort of a, he's sort of a servant or aide of the of the rich guy something. But he, he called him his friend. But he's he a kind he's of a paid. He's kind of it's a little gay to he's, be honest. He's a fixer. I think he's also a fixer because he was he was yes. from the IRA and he had done like booze running through Mexico yeah. and stuff. But, people, but he definitely also. He seems to also be getting paid to keep the general company. Yes, yes. He's paid to have drinks with him, as he says. Mm -hmm. um, so, and again, yeah, you can infer this is where you bring your adult sensibilities. So basically, that's his boy drink? toy. Possibly, Absolutely. yes. He's like the sugar so, daddy. Right. Okay. Um, so uh, now this guy, though, might be, he, he might swing both ways. Because what ends up happening is the younger daughter comes on to this guy, whose name is Sean Regan. He rejects her because supposedly he's interested in another guy's wife. Mm -hmm. Possibly, this is a possible thing, like that you can sort of pick up on. Wait, who's Sean um, Regan? So do we do we Sean, have, do we ever we never see him on screen? Sean we never, we never him. see him. Right. He's dead before we even before the movie starts. Okay. So she she kills him, and in the process of doing so, <laughs> uh, they they go to this gambler to cover it up, um, because otherwise the the younger so the older daughter seeks the help of this gambler slash crime magnet guy. Um, to help cover the whole thing up. So he invents this whole story about, about Sean Regan running off with his wife. And in order to make this story work, he actually sequesters his wife somewhere. He sends her away so that it seems like she has run off. Nobody knows where she is, blah, blah, blah. Um, so the story looks really real. Like, oh, Sean Regan ran away with the wife. His the gay wife guy gone, ran away so with the guy's wife. It sounds so yeah. real. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he he fake. It's, it's, a, it's a rare move. It's called the fake cucking. Uh, well, if you ever, if you yeah, ever want exactly. if you ever want to throw people off your scent, pretend, pretend you've been cucked, and then it would have been questions. very embarrassing to this guy because that Indeed. does imply that his wife ran off with another man. But he's doing it in order so that he can now blackmail the two of them, uh, which he does. And you're referring to what's his name? Uh, Eddie Mars, played by John Ridgely. John Ridgely, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> All right, so Eddie now has something on both the older and the younger daughter, so that he can sort of control them. Which is Carmen. And, and Vivian. 
who is and played Vivian. by Lauren Bacall. Yeah. Lauren Bacall right. and the younger sister is played by Martha Vickers. Yeah. Right. Two of our many dames. So Eddie's busy, like, basically going after Vivian on this one because Carmen's sort of a wild card. And then in the meantime, Carmen is also engaging with, and this is possibly through Eddie Mars. They never explicitly state this, but Eddie Mars rents a house to this guy named Geiger. Geiger's the bookstore owner, the rare bookshop owner, um, who is possibly gay. I don't really know. Like, it's not really present in the movie, but he was in the book. Um, so well, hold he, on a second. It, in the movie, first of all, there yeah. is two scenes in which a young hot dude goes in the back in his office and then leaves with him. And then he has a key to his home. And they mention the fact that he has a key to his home. And the reason why he has a key to his home is because he's his lover. Uh, I mean, they don't say that in the movie. The The bookstore girl that he that he makes it with um she says that the guy is just like his assistant or servant or something right but the guy is super hot whenever someone's that hot i just assume that they're gay no of course and again that's where you bring (laughs) you bring your adult sensibilities to this the movie never explicitly tells you these things but you can imagine these patrick i love that you get so into the spirit of recapping a 1946 movie that you call it making it I mean, you got to try to, right? Uh, so so Geiger is in league somehow with Eddie Mars, and Geiger's running his own side racket of pornography, right? So he has uh, enlisted Carmen, who probably doesn't want to be there, but is probably being blackmailed in order to, to, to take those photos. So he drugs her up. He gets her high on, I'm assuming, some sort of opium-based liquid. Um, they, we never know what's in the cup, but she's clearly, as Bogart says, high as a kite. Uh, and she's, it's not she's from, a looney tune at that it's point. not from alcohol <laughs> so it, it uh, so anyway so one night um she's over there getting these pictures taken and geiger is murdered he's murdered by the chauffeur for the family for carmen's family carmen and vivian's family. you're talking about the dead body that's lying next to her when that's correct Logie that's geiger. shows up okay yeah, so Geiger is shot by the chauffeur who who is sweet on Carmen. And then Bogey discovers the camera, but the, the actual film reel is missing. Right, so here's where we get into the tricky part. So Joe Brody is another you know shyster who's working with Geiger, right? And you see Joe Brody at Geiger's bookstore uh, back in the office. Played uh, by Louis-Jean Haight. Louis-Jean Haight, fucking great in this movie. He is really good in this movie. So he's working with Geiger. Geiger is shot by the chauffeur. The chauffeur has a crush on Carmen, even though Carmen would never, you know, go with him. Um, So he gets so mad that she's being abused in this way that he shoots Geiger, and then he he steals the film, and he hightails it out of there. Brody goes after him to at least, because he sees an opportunity, to at least get the film. And Brody has been involved in the blackmailing of this family, so he feels like if I can get this film, I can blackmail them some more, which he does. <laughs> so these are side gigs. This is one that Eddie Mars isn't really familiar with. Eddie Mars isn't in control of this. All he knows is that Geiger ended up getting his, the guy that rents his house, and who he probably worked with on some level, uh, has been shot. And so he's yeah. trying to figure out what all this is so, happening. And now he knows that there's a, a detective sniffing around this family's problems and he knows that he's involved with this family's problems in the murder of sean regan so now it's up to him to try to redirect philip marlowe the detective away from certain things so i just want to pause here and just note that i think this is another way in which the movie is just sort of naturally confusing because there are uh multiple rackets that are kind of like a venn diagram of who is involved and who knows about what 
Um, it's not quite a primer, but you but a diagram might help. Well, it also doesn't help that the name that's mentioned the most or the names that are mentioned the most are also people we never see because they're dead. But yes. does this bring us to the scene in which Bogey, the two sisters and Joe meet up? And I think they're at Joe's apartment or so. I don't know. And everyone yeah, pulls Agnes. a gun. Yes, Agnes, Joe Brody. Agnes worked at the bookstore. She's the sort of the sarcastic uh, <laughs> clerk yeah, or desk. Not the, the clerk he sleeps with, the clerk who works no. at the shady bookstore. No, that's and right. She's played by an un- a, a, a tragically, um, uh, a, a miscarriage of justice that she was not credited. Agnes Lozier. Uh, yeah, never, she, uh, so, she ended up getting a credit in a TV version later for the same character. So, but never got a so, credit for this film. Sony Darren is her name, yeah. Yes. Um, great, great, another great performance. Like, she's oh, fantastic. She's so good. And she's a grifter of her own, right? So yes. she's also running grifts, and that's where Henry Jones will come in later. But, um, yeah, so we end up at that apartment. And what has happened is that uh, Vivian has been instructed by Eddie Mars. Eddie Mars is now leaning on her, using the influence that he has because of the, her sister murdering Sean Regan and his help covering it up. She owes him, right? So he's leaning on her to get Marlowe off this case to wrap this thing up this thing that had nothing to do with them so what you're seeing here is is a is crimes that converge that originally had nothing to do with each other but one is going to lead to the discovery of the other richard which is the classic philip marlowe thing of course the two cases that end up being the same goddamn case exactly and even though these crimes have have literally nothing really to do with each other they are going to like one is going to help uncover the other one and eddie mars is trying to try to lean on vivian to make sure that that doesn't happen it's so almost like a, it's almost like a reverse of the usual Marlowe um, formula that I'm used to in other adaptations, actually, where instead of being two seemingly unrelated cases that turn out to be related, you've got all this seemingly related stuff that turns out to be more or less unrelated. unrelated yeah, but we but see yeah. this in so many movies. You have a bunch of crimes that are intertwined yes. by accident because a so-and-so character, and that gives us this really, conf- I mean, really confusing at times like plot and i mean everyone from tarantino to the coen brothers to you name it have have done a movie similar to anyways whatever i'm all confused i'm all confused thinking about this movie but we're at we are at the apartment scene yes so joe brody who used to work with geiger has gone rogue right and so eddie mars is leaning on vivian at first, Vivian tells Marlo about the the blackmail letter that she gets from Joe Brody. But later on, Eddie Mars leans on her, hey, clean this thing up. So she goes to just pay it off. But Marlo is too smart, and he follows her there anyway. So basically, everybody's motivation in this, Vivian and Eddie Mars' motivation, is to clean up this stupid Geiger thing, which they were not involved in. They just want to clean it up and get it done with as fast as possible so that Marlo doesn't begin to sniff out the other things that have been going on in his family. Unfortunately for them, he does. Whereas these other little small-time two-bit actors like Joe Brody and Geiger, they're just doing their, they're running their own games, and they have no idea how they're potentially screwing up Eddie Mars's bigger game. Refresh my memory: Who gets poisoned again? Okay, that's Henry uh, Jones. That's that's uh, poor Henry Jones. Yes, and Henry Jones is just somebody who is in love with Agnes, and Agnes is also running her own grifts, and she gets Eddie Jones to go do these things for her, and unfortunately, it ends up with him being killed. It's actually the the whole little Harry Jones arc is the most noirish part of and this movie. Who poisons Harry? Uh, it, you can see. Okay, so this is something. If you're not watching, like if you blink for a second, you'll miss it. But it's it's uh, Eddie Mars's hitman does it, and his yes. name is oh god, I can't remember. Um, let me just think about this. Canino, Canino. 
So Canino. yeah, Eddie Mars's hitman Canino, who is that guy that's talking to him and saying, "Don't worry, I'm not going to hurt Agnes." He's just a creepy looking out. dude. When there's a shot through the window of the door, the door window, where you just sort of see a you know it's a frosted window, and you see the shadow of Canino as he goes over to the water cooler because Harry Jones tells him that like, "Oh yeah, hey, there's a cup on, by the water cooler," and you see him pull something out of his jacket and dump it in the cup. So and then he gives the cup to and tells him to drink up. It's not poison. So it's, it is poison, it, actually. It's poison. Yeah. Yes. That's a me- that's mean, by the way, and it's against the rules. If you hand someone a cup and you tell them it's not poison and there's poison inside, that's you're a bad person. I, but but you know that Jones knows it too. He knows he's gonna die right there, and he still doesn't give Agnes up, meaning that he's probably the only really honorable yeah. character. And yeah, and by the thing. way, again, what the, the reason this is the no- most noirish part of the movie is fucking Marlowe just stands there like a chump the entire time. Yes, he just watches. Now, to be fair, that was poetic because Jones stood there and watched Marlowe get worked over by a couple of thugs. So Not quite the same. I mean, he was able to get up from that beating within an at literally an hour. So yeah, I don't know if Marlowe thought he was going to get poisoned, but anyway, it's yeah. Co poetic justice, Simon. So going back to the Big Lebowski for one second. <laughs> Absolutely. Who is the Larry in this movie? Is it Harry? Larry. Yeah, remember Wait, remember Larry from the Big Lebowski? Who's homework? Uh, the, the kid with the homework there. Oh, oh, yeah. This is why you uh, don't remember. He shows up at a kid's house <laughs> and starts in interrogating the poor kid. Yeah, yes. little Larry Sellers. The kid, like so... the fictional character in the Big Lebowski, little Larry Sellers. We're not entirely sure how he's connected to the entire plot of the film, but it's an amazing scene. Somebody we think is involved, but it turns out they're not involved in anything whatsoever. Um, I mean, there there are a lot of um, Norris the Butler. The, yeah, Norris. <laughs> I don't I really mean, know what his deal is. We're gonna get to that. We're gonna get to highlights in a second, but um, I don't think there's a direct analog for that character. But there are a lot of characters who you only meet once, mm-hmm. um, like an unusual number of characters you only meet once. It's another reason you're like, oh, are they are they part of the plot? Are they integral? No, they're not. Are we done with the plot? Yeah, I think we can. I, think I mean, are. I think from then on, anybody can sort of understand like what happens afterwards. If you watch the movie, you'll you'll. That's a basic summary of everybody's motivation. Yeah, good guys win. Okay, bad guys. So lose. I have a question because I think Lauren Bacall is really good in this film, but she's great. I don't think she's the best. I think Dorothy Malone and Martha Vickers. Even though they have less screen time and less dialogue, I think they are so amazing. The introduction to her sister when she meets Philip for the first time, played by Humphrey Bogart, that whole entire sequence, oh my God, that's like iconic. Like her introduction is amazing. And then when we have the bookstore scene and it's implied that they are going to go in the back and have sex, that entire scene is like, I mean, in terms of like how it's written, scripted, uh, staged, the shot composition, the performance, it's like pitch perfect. I mean, even though uh, it has that ridiculous element, that, I mean, and by ridiculous, I mean completely in keeping with 1940s mores uh, and like uh, contemporary constructions of masculinity where he's just like, take your glasses off. And she's like, okay. <laughs> like, I know. And then he's like, oh, suddenly you're beautiful now. <laughs> yeah. He, 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 she, he, he, uh, he, she's all that's her. In like yes. the space of a couple, of, it's, that, it's that's really got to be something about like the forties. Like maybe people just didn't. Oh yeah, think that no, no, that's what I mean. Yeah, were, like, good looking. Yeah. No, it's 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 very yeah, and clearly we didn't shake that for another few decades completely. But uh, other, I mean, even with that, yeah, she's so great, and they probably have the most believable chemistry in the entire film. 
<laughs> also, Hertz didn't have, if you noticed, they didn't have uh, ear, whatever those are called, like anything to wrap around your ear. Yeah, they were just, 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 they just resting on her nose. Yeah. It's a really striking Maybe scene, he just but... didn't want to break her glasses. He would have knocked him off for sure, right? They had nothing to steady them. He would have knocked him off for sure. Maybe that's all he was doing was saying, hey, you know, you may want to take those off. (laughs) Speaking of breaks, we should take one. Yeah, I suppose we probably should. Uh, I know that I took most of our time there (laughs) with the plot description, but we'll get into some more details uh, after the break. But before then, here's another clip from The Big Sleep. Go right in, sir. You're expected. Thanks. You wanted to see me? So you're a private detective. I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Ah, you're a mess, aren't you? (laughs) I'm not very tall, either. Next time I'll come on stilts, wear a white tie, and carry a tennis racket. I doubt if even that would help. Now, this business of Dad's... Think you can handle it for him? That shouldn't be too tough. Really? I would have thought a case like that took a little effort. Not too much. What will your first step be? The usual one. I didn't know there was a usual oh, one. Oh, sure there is. It comes complete with diagrams on page 47 of how to be a detective in 10 easy lessons, correspondence, school textbook, and uh, your father offered me a drink. You must have read another one on how to be a comedian. You hear what I said about the drink? I'm quite serious, Mr. Marlowe. My father's not father. help yourself. Now, look, Mr. Marlowe. My father's not well, and I want this case handled with the least possible worry to him. That's just the way I was going to handle it. I see. No professional secrets. No. I thought you wanted a drink. I changed my mind. Then what? How did you like Dad? I liked him. He liked Sean. Sean Regan. I suppose you'll know who he is. Uh Uh-huh. You don't have to play poker with me, Mr. Marlowe. Dad wants to find him, doesn't he? Do you? Of course I do. It wasn't right for him to go off like that. Broke Dad's heart, although he won't say much about it. Or did he? Why don't you ask him? You know, I don't see what there is to be cagey about, Mr. Marlowe. And I don't like your manners. Well, I'm not crazy about yours. I didn't ask to see you. I don't mind if you don't like my manners. I don't like them myself. They're pretty bad. I grieve over them long winter evenings. And I don't mind you ritzing me or drinking your lunch out of a bottle. But don't waste your time trying to cross-examine me. People don't talk to me like that. Oh. Do you always think you can handle people like uh, train seals? Uh-huh. I usually get away with it, too. How nice for you. All right, that was another clip from The Big Sleep. We are at the portion of the podcast where we ask our five questions. Since we didn't get too in detail with the elements of this movie, with like the, the filmmaking elements of this movie, maybe we'll, or the, even the actors, um, now is the time to do that, gentlemen. Uh, all right, so we're going to go favorite scene, and this, this, might, uh, this might reveal a few things. Uh, Rick, you first. What was your favorite scene from The Big Sleep? Well, it's the bookshop scene. Yeah, I think okay. it's... Um... It shows Humphrey Bogart at his most charismatic. The dialogue is superb. The the performances from the two characters, the two actors are like, you know, top notch. And he doesn't even catch on at first that she's hitting on him. Like she wants him, right? And he says something like, oh, it's raining. I guess I'm going to get wet. And she's like, she tries to imply, well, you can wait in the bookstore. And he's like, yeah, I guess I can stay in here and get wet. You know, like it's like, I forget the actual yeah. dialogue, but it was like really interesting to see that his character because the thing about Humphrey Bogart is he's not traditionally like a really good looking dude. Like he's charismatic and he's sexy and clearly ladies love him. Cause let's not forget that he was actually having an affair with, with Lauren Bacall in real life. And eventually they did stay as they, they did become a couple. And I think she was with him until the day he died. Right. Which but, was only a decade after this came. I think it was like 14 yeah. years later, but still, 
Um, so it's interesting to see because like a lot you figure in a lot of these movies, these type of characters, they would be very cocky and they would assume and think that all the ladies like them. And in this film, he doesn't like the ladies do like him, like the cab driver, for example. Oh, yeah. Like she she's totally hitting on him. He says something like he he tells her he, I forget what it is. Like he gives her a business card. And then she, she gives him a business card and she says, you can call me anytime. And he goes day or night. And she says, probably night. I work during the day. I work during well, the day. Right. It's it's actually I forget the actual line. I didn't write it down, but the actual line is dirtier. I, I think one of the, the best things about that, though, and this, this is a part where I, I uh, <laughs> you can go by in an instant. The bookstore scene, though, is when he leaves her. And she's basically saying, you know, hey, you can call me another time. And he's basically saying, no, nah, I don't think that's going to happen. And then he says, see ya, pal. <laughs> yeah, he pats he, on he, the shoulder. Yeah, he all but gives her a little gentle pat on the head on, her, <laughs> on his way out. The other thing that she that's, looks uh, so crestfallen after she that. She does. Like... Yeah. It's the other thing that's funny about that scene is that she gets like weak in the knees for him. I think mainly basically because prior to the scene, he's done like eight minutes of research in the local library about rare books. Yes. And she's just like, apparently never met a man who knows anything before. And it's just like, she loses her mind. The bar is so low folks. Although you do really see her. He mentions that he's a detective too. And that's yes, when you that's really true. see her catch on too. So it's the book, that combination of the book thing and detective that I think really gets her. And you know what? If you worked in a bookstore, maybe back then when there were a lot of, that was a high time for detective stories. Um, that era like maybe that would be kind of an appealing thing like oh, an actual real life detective working a case is uh, probably not appealing book. enough that you would close your bookstore a couple hours early for a <laughs> no back of the store quickie while you do also do like a, a, a sex stakeout or whatever <laughs> well it's raining outside what else are they gonna That's do true. um simon what's your favorite scene i'm gonna go with an uh, an unusual scene that we haven't actually mentioned yet and um, it's unusual because it doesn't involve any of the many wonderful dames of this movie. Uh, it's the setup scene between uh, Bogey and Charles Waldron as General Sternwood. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a long scene of dialogue. It's the most, I think it's the most novelistic part of the film um, in terms of like, it's got this, it's got this actually like detailed, you know, it's, it takes place in a greenhouse there's these plants everywhere. There's orchids which have which have flesh like men. Um, <laughs> yes. The dialogue is so over the top. You know, um, Faulkner wrote that that scene. Yeah, right? like yeah. T- like like I guarantee you that never in human history have two men had a conversation anything like this in real life. You talking about the like, scene right at the start of the film where he's sweating like crazy? Yes, yeah. and and you have this syphilitic weird old man. Um, talking about his talking about his daughters and how he's in all this trouble because he had his daughters too late and he got what he deserves, which is like in real life, rich old weirdos get more syphilitic and less uh, less aware of their surroundings and not the other way around. So the way, the fact that it's this way in the movie is extremely funny. He's also aware that he can't lecture them because he's done some things in his life that it would Indeed, be a hip- yeah. hypocrisy to lecture them. Which, again, uh, not usually the way old men handle are, things. Are you that. saying that Faulkner wrote it or you're guessing he wrote it because he's a novelist? I'm guessing. That's a, that's okay. a guess. Just because of the, the orchid man, you know, flesh thing. Maybe yeah. that's in the book. I don't well, know. But it seems like the sort of thing that would probably appeal to Faulkner, too. It, it also kind of makes you expect a different type of movie because it's got this... It's it's got the you know these metaphors and this imagery and it's it's just I don't know it's such a rich scene in terms of how it's written and it's so um, 
it's so indul it's so indulgent in a way that's fun to watch. And then the rest of the movie ends up being a lot more grounded. How come this guy's never really written famous films apart from The Big Sleep? Chandler movies? Um, I don't know. I mean, the detective story just isn't something that people really get into anymore. I mean, there's. And... I mean, the Philip Marlowe was remade a bunch more times. Yeah, I mean, they made they... versions, but none of them are famous, though. I wouldn't say. Not. The, I mean, depends on your audience. The um, in the eighties, the HBO uh, series with motherfucking powers, goddamn Booth as <laughs> Philip Marlowe. Basic. That was like HBO's first original series, I think. So it uh, it it kind of helped them get their get their start. So clearly, it had an audience. Yeah, I, I mean, his, it's on YouTube, his... by the way. It's definitely worth uh, worth. Checking by out. the way, just going back to your favorite scene, which I'm flo- I'm floored that that is your favorite scene because it's my least favorite scene in the film. But anyways, ah. I do like how Howard Hawks has this thing he does has a, a director where he wants his his cast to do specific physical movements throughout the whole entire film to give them more quote unquote character. And you see it with, for example, Carmen. I think she's always putting her her thumb in her thumb mouth. In her mouth yeah. And Bogey's always, I think, like scratching his ear. Or he's doing something like you can like that that thing that he does before he throws a punch where he's kind of like brushing his knuckles up against his chest or whatever it is he's doing. Also, yeah. a lot of times it's really weird. I kept thinking about like dogs and cats because they would always turn their back towards the person they're speaking to. Like, like, have you ever seen how animals flirt? Are you saying that that Bogey was presenting his rear? <laughs> or no, the ladies were. <laughs> he Our or the ladies were. were. It was like I, it was I think like, I, I know what you mean. Let I, me I turn around and look at my ass. <laughs> like, and then they would move like a cat moves. Like you know, way like the way a cat moves, like the body sways left and right, and her ass really moves. I'm telling you, watch uh, the movie again. There's something about <laughs> the body movements and the way there is a there is line character yeah i can see what you mean well definitely carmen is one of those um although she doesn't ever turn around she's always no but even lauren bacall because in the very first meeting between vivian and philip he goes to i think it's her bedroom which is really weird because she has like a cabinet full of like liquor and he's asking for a drink and she won't pour him a drink and like Mm -hmm. she legit turns and then he turns it's like this is like this weird standoff, except... Yeah, there's definitely a dance going on there. And of course, it also makes sense for plot purposes that she's trying to be coy about stuff. Um, my favorite scene is the Joe Brody apartment scene. I like everything that sort of happens there, how it sort of goes from... It, it shows sort of all the character elements of Marlowe, where he is smart enough to figure things out. He is cool under pressure, having a gun pointed at him. He's got great wisecracks in that scene when he's saying that everybody's throwing guns at me today or something like that. Um, I'm collecting guns from everyone. It's got Agnes in there, and Agnes is sort of this just like person chirping in the background that Marlo's trying to hear because he can appreciate her humor. Um, it's got a shooting, so it's got a little bit of action in it. It's got the the tense moment with when Carmen comes in with a gun. Yeah, kind of. Everyone in this, and everyone in this scene has a but, gun. Everyone gets their gun taken I, away, and then when someone answers the door, the guy gets shot. He gets shot. Yeah, so he gets <laughs> shot by Carol uh, because Carol thought that he killed Geiger. I still can't believe he, his name is which Carol. He didn't. I well, I mean, you think of like the. I think Carol was a, a Eastern European name, more common at the time. Um, yeah, so that, that's my favorite scene. I think it's got a little bit of everything. I think it's got a lot of people to deal with. It's one of the, it's the, one of the scenes with the most characters all involved. A lot of moving parts in that. And I think he stages it really well. I love when Brody's uh, lying to him. He's sitting in that chair and he keeps turning his body, and Marlo keeps walking to make sure that 
he can't quite turn away from him. Um, just a little bit. It's it's very obvious, but I like it. Uh, there's a lot of good staging in that scene for me. So I, that's my it. Re, it re, it made me think a little bit of uh, like an episode of Justified or something. Like you've got Raylan like kicking a gun out of someone's hand and pulling someone out of another's, and he's got all three in his hand. And he's like, "Ha, I've got all the guns" or whatever. Except <laughs> it's a lot less flashy than that. Yes, good definitely. Stuff. Uh, but yeah, it's got some some good dialogue. Uh, all right. So if there was just one thing you could change about this film, what would it be? Simon, we'll start with you first. There's a lot of things you could say. It's tough because the thing that I would most want to change is the thing that is so obviously a product of how and why the film was produced and released the way it was and marketed, of course. And that is, of course, the Bogey Bacall romance, which to me just feels uh, hopelessly tacked on. Um, in terms of, I don't know, these characters declaring their love for each other and have, I don't know, it just, it doesn't, it's not only because it undercuts the, the noirness, although it does do that. Um, it's just, I don't know, it's weird. It Even though they were having a real affair, but got married later, blah, blah, blah. It does, I don't know, it feels forced to me. It feels very forced. The flirtation's real. It's the romance that's that's the bad. Exactly. The yeah. The, I mean, the, the, the flirtation's great. It's the romance. The, the patter is great. The way it gets, they leapfrog straight to "I'm in love with you," and then there's like big swooning strings. It's like, oh, 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 oh gag me, honestly. Although the way she says it, I do like that. I guess I love you or something. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, Simon. I, I wouldn't change that. I think that would like kill the movie. I mean, one of the things everyone talks about is the chemistry between them two. So like it's natural chemistry. Yeah. People say a lot of things. <laughs> I don't know. They have chemistry, but I don't think it's right for the plot and the characters. It, it's, okay. it's too much. It's too much too quickly uh, in that situation. It's just silly. It's, and again, it makes sense for the time and why it was made, and I understand why they did it, and I understand why people liked it, but it it's not, to me, the best creative choice. Sure. Uh, Rick, what about you? What would you change? I really do not like Simon's favorite scene. Like, <laughs> really? I, I hate it. Yeah. I you really don't like that like scene. I, I, I yeah. like the introduction of Bogey. I like the introduction of the two sisters. I just did not care for the dad, the old man. I just don't think it makes a very good first impression for anybody watching a film noir, especially now in like 2021. And I was a little worried, like rewatching the movie. I was like, wait a minute, is this going to be like a really bad film? Like, I don't know. It just, you're asking me for, you're, you're asking me what I would change. And if I had to change something, it's my least favorite scene. So why not change my least favorite scene? I could also say, well, let's jump into a time machine and let's make sure that they don't reshoot the entire film. And it takes like two years for them to release the film and so on and so forth. Like maybe we would have a better film. I, I don't know. Like, I mean, I can make that change. I could be like Dr. Strange and there's like a multiverse and we would end up having a film that's like way worse. Would you, you just cut feeling... that scene entirely? Like, do you think that it doesn't, uh, it, the information. It's could just be one more additional character for no reason. Let's just let the ladies like recite the information. Fill us, fill us in on what we need to know yeah. I, and get the it, plot moving and and get to like the good stuff, man. Someone can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels to me like the stuff that that they ended the extra bogey and Bacall stuff that they tacked on in the intervening period with the reshoots. That must have been mostly in the back half, right? Because I, I was noticing while watching the first half. Wow. Bacall's not in this very much. And then she shows up a lot more like later on. It's there's I could tell you which scenes were added. Okay. Um, 
So, so the scene where he brings Carmen home, that's pretty close to the beginning because he finds yeah. Carmen and he brings her home. Like that whole scene where he takes her up to her bed, that never happens in the 1945 one. He just drops her with the butler and takes off. Uh, he actually just leaves the car there and everything. There's even a, a slight change of dialogue. Um, so yeah, he, he just shows up. In fact, the, the scene where he's talking to the butler at the door, that's at the end of that whole thing after he brings Carmen home, that's actually just the entire scene in the 1945 right. thing. By the way, um, quick shout out to Charles Brown, who plays Norris, the butler. That guy awesome. rules. And just to quickly, many mistakes. And just to quickly <laughs> mention that they they did not only film more scenes with Lauren Bacall, but they cut out scenes with the mm-hmm. with the, Carmen. Well, not not just with Carmen, but they even cut out scenes with the bookshop keeper, the one who's not credited. Yeah. Although her character, I mean, it feels like it, it pretty much, at least in the 1945 version, it feels like it's appropriate enough. You don't need her that much. She's not that big of a player. I was watching a bunch of interviews, and apparently the story goes that they wanted to cut some of the scenes from a lot of the ladies in the movie because they were so good, and they were afraid that if they didn't give enough scenes to Lauren Bacall, she would get bad reviews. And she had just filmed a movie. She had just starred in a film where she got bad reviews. So they were afraid it would ruin her career. And the thing is, is Howard Hawks, Simon, you're, you're going to like this. He didn't want them to have a romance. He didn't like the fact that they had chemistry nice. because Howard Hawks had the hots for Lauren Bacall, but she had the hots for Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, uh, you hate to see it. <laughs> he didn't even want her in the movie because he knew that they had no. a thing going on because they were in a movie prior. Which he directed. As which well. he directed. And that's where they started their romance. Yeah. Yeah. Which yep. he he uh, he did it to himself in the end, I guess. He did. Um, the, but yeah, uh, anyway. So uh, she's yeah she and the 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 restaurant scene that's not in the that was a completely new scene. Um, in the in the original, she just sort of shows up at his office again, um, wearing a veil. It's it's not, not a terribly interesting scene, but it's shorter. Um, it's it's also just I don't know. It's it's funny how even in the final edit, which uh, has less of the other ladies and more of Bacall. It's still amazing just how many striking like female actors just show up one scene after the other. Like, like even like there's the cab lady. She's like really interesting for some reason. And then even near the end, Mona shows up played by Peggy Knudsen and she's kind of cool too. And they've got like Bogey tied up in the middle of the room and it's a little kinky to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, I don't know. There's just like, it, it's, there's so many of them. It's wild. I, I lost track of how many there were at a certain point. <laughs> And I guess, like, I don't know, it's hard to say with, like, one thing that I would change about this movie. And keep in mind, like, I, I like this movie a lot, but I, I also do not consider it to be, like, a masterpiece. I think I said that. Um, I think it's got its problems. I'm not sure if one thing could fix this. The one thing that I would change the most, I guess, I guess if I could change one thing the most, I would release the 19, I would make the 1945 version the standard mm-hmm. and the 1946 version an alternate cut. Um, I I don't think those scenes, those extra scenes with Bacall and Bogart, maybe at the time that helped them sell the movie more, but they don't actually make it a better movie. The 45 version to me is the better movie. I, I'm going to quickly change my answer. I'm, I'm redacting my original answer. You can keep it in the podcast, but it, I'm redacting it. I never said it. My real answer is that another writer should have come in after all those punch up guys and just given the script one last brutal edit and just said, uh, we can do this with four fewer characters and it 20 fewer minutes. Like, yeah. It, and it could, it could have been done. So the writers are William Faulkner, Lee Brackett, Jules Furtman, 
novel written by clearly Raymond Chandler, and that's it, right? Uh, yeah, I think there was an uncredited guy who did some of the, the reshoots. But other than that... That's a yeah, lot of those... cooks, man. And Lee that's Brackett, of, of course, went on to... For an adaptation. 40 years later, write The Empire Strikes Back. Indeed. All right, let's move on. <laughs> MVP of this production. This could be a variety of different things. I feel like we could have a lot of answers. Rick, who's your MVP? I don't know. I mean, I'm complaining about the, the script the entire time, and now I feel like I should give it to Lee Brackett because this is the same person who wrote Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back and The Long Goodbye. So maybe she she helped make sense of this like crazy screenplay. She also wrote Rio Bravo. Wow. Um, yeah, amazing career, yeah. The MVP, I'm going to give it to the ladies. Not just one person, but all the ladies. 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 Every <laughs> single lady in this film. Hey, ladies. All the single ladies? Right. Yes. Oh. Because it's like why I love the movie. It, it honest to God, I, I mean, agree, look, yeah. the thing about Bogey is Bogey's Bogey. He's a star. He's a superstar. But his character is no different in this film than Sam Spade. And, and the thing about Bogey is he's one of those actors where – you don't see Philip Marlowe. You don't see Sam Spade. You see Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey Bogart you yeah. sure, you sure do. Yes. And so he's good, but he's just plain bogey. Bogey's being bogey, whereas the ladies are just killing it. Now, should you give it to the casting director then as the MVP? <laughs> nah, they're the one that chose all these great actresses to be in. The... <laughs> uh, all right, <laughs> Simon. What do you got um, to top that? I mean, that's a very tempting answer, but uh, in order to give it to just one person, I'm going to give it to Bacall, honestly, because uh, I, I I think she's the only person in the movie who seems to have like the gravitas and the position in the film to actually put Marlo a little bit on his heels from time to time. And uh, you need someone with the presence to be able to do that. And obviously she had it. And um, also shout out to the sequence where she, um, you know, in this period, another obligatory thing that was there like three quarters of the time is there must be a song that appears in almost its entirety. And, <laughs> right. uh, and she sings one and it's I love that sequence. I, I, I thought about naming that as my favorite. It seems very old fashioned, which is kind of why I like it. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I like watching old movies, by the way, to think of what they thought. I'm not saying that old movies depict life back then, but they depict what people sort of thought about life back then. I want to give a runner up if if we're talking about the cast. I think my my overall runner up for like the other person who left the biggest impression on me in their limited screen time, which is what basically everyone has. I think I have to give it to Alicia Cook Jr. who plays Harry Jones. Um, mm -hmm. I love that performance. I love the way this happens with a few characters, but I think it's most convincing with him the way he puts up this tough front and he acts all tough and smart, and then it turns out he's just another yellow bastard um who just like kind of crumbles under pressure and he has this tragic ending and he has he, he's almost like a little short film unto himself his, uh, he's his a hero though he, i would yeah. argue that he doesn't crumble because he does not give the actual address of no of but Agnes. he lies and yeah. he, he sacrifices himself he knows he's he knows he's going down no matter what because he's not tough enough to beat that guy but he's not yeah. going to give her up because he's in love with it's her. it's it's actually that he actually has the most pathos of any character in the film. And he's really only in it for maybe a combined like seven minutes. But he also gives uh, Marlo heart. He is the heart for some reason, for some bizarre reason. Yeah. His this fucking random ass bro who shows up 95 minutes into this movie ends up being its uh, secret heart. Yes. It's quite, and, it's quite a trick. Yeah. And it's why Marlo goes on his, you know, why Marlo gets so angry at the end. Um, 
I'm going to give it to Bogart because I just don't think the movie works nearly as well without him. I just don't think it can. I don't think despite all the other, I think you replace Bogart and this is, nobody's talking about this movie. Uh, I think that that is a character that he, he owns more than any other actor of the time. Um, so I just, I got to give it to him. And I think he is fantastic. He's, you know, highly watchable you could they could have made a ton more of these philip marlowe movies and i think they'd all be they would all be famous if they, you know they'd all be well known at this point you, you don't well, think robert like, mitchum would do better than bogey i don't think so no have Bogart's you seen the 78 got... version uh yeah a long time ago i did i didn't like it very much yeah I remember i'm gonna have like to it. watch it now because i feel like uh I, I just love robert mitchum so much i there's no way i'm gonna i love that. robert mitchum but i'm telling you i remember not liking that movie very much i'm excited to check it out at some point yeah i i, I don't remember enough about it i just don't remember being high on it um but yeah so that's my pick okay this is the moment we've all been waiting for guys does the howard hawks movie pass the howard hawks howard test? hawks test uh no I don't. That I don't was quick. Personally... Well, actually, hold on. Let me think about that for a minute. Um, actually, I think it does, uh, except that it also kind of breaks the Howard Hawks test because I think it proves uh, that you can have a bunch of great scenes, but I don't think in this case it does add up to a great movie. Now, well, well first, let's break this down. Uh, Rick, also, what do you think? Three great scenes and no bad ones. And I think we have to explain what we think are the great scenes in this because that's where I may have a quibble. Uh, I don't well, think I only think I think the film only has two great scenes. I think it has a lot of good scenes, but I don't think it has three great Get scenes. Get wrecked, Howard. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I think it has. Well, a okay, lot so of hold good on scenes. a second. So I think the bookstore is guaranteed one of the great scenes. Yeah. What's your second? Yes. Uh, for me, I would say the Joe Brody apartment scene. But I, that's a, I like that scene. I think it's I think it encompasses the whole movie. I don't to think me. that's a great scene. I think it's a fun scene. Like. Oh, man, I yeah. don't know. Like, There's a lot of fun like they're scenes, holding a yeah. gun. He's yeah. not at all threatened or worried. And then like the guy just gets randomly shot by when he answers the door. Like I don't know the whole setup. Like even for a movie made in 1946, it just didn't seem like anybody knew how to hell to handle a gun, and nobody knew what they were actually doing in that scene. It was just it seemed very confusing. I, I, I think it's a I'm fun not going to die though. on that hill. I, I'm not going to defend it to death because I don't think there are too many. This isn't a movie that's made up of iconic moments. I think the bookstore is the one thing that pretty much everybody who sees this movie remembers yeah. that scene. Uh, um, I would argue the, the first scene, hazy. though, because when people talk about this movie, they always talk about the bookstore scene and they always talk about the introduction to Philip and the sister. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I, you're I short. Think, yeah, I, I think of it sort of, as I said before, like a even more than a collection of scenes, which I know is what I've been saying. It's almost more like a, it's a collection of moments. It's a collection of interactions and it's mo moreover a large collection of uh, quotable dialogue. None of which we've really been doing uh, quoting it. I mean, um, but uh, I don't know. I think if I was to watch any individual scene from this movie, I would basically enjoy it just to me you know, strung in a line, uh, an unbroken line of almost two hours is just uh, a little bit too much of a fun thing. Yeah. Like I'll give you an example. I wouldn't call it a great scene, but in terms of like great dialogue, when they start talking about horses. Yes. Oh, the <laughs> restaurant scene, right? Isn't that that one? Yeah, I think so. Is it at the restaurant or the casino? I thought it was the rest. Speaking of horses, I like to play them myself, but I like to see them work out a little first. See if they're front runners or come from behind. Find out what their whole card is, what makes them run, etc. Again, with animals, by the way. Yes, that's when they're on their date at the restaurant. <laughs> yeah. If you well, it's because it it's a haze code, so they they needed a way to you know to say what they need to say without actually saying it. 
Because yes. like Vivian ends that whole entire conversation by saying a lot depends on who's in the saddle. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So, but I don't consider it a great scene. It's just a good stretch of dialogue. Yeah, it's fun. Agreed. Because there's not much more happening in that scene other than dialogue. It's just right. them talking to each other and they're not really doing, there's not nothing happening. So officially Howard Hawks fails the Howard Hawks test. I don't think this movie, yeah, I don't think it passes because I don't think it has three great scenes. I, I don't mm-hmm. think that there's a truly bad scene in this movie. Although, Rick, you'd probably count the, you don't like the scene with the general. or the Well, general, I don't think the, it's a uh, bad scene. I just like, it's my least favorite scene. So when you ask me what I would change, I'm going to change my least favorite scene. But I don't think it's a bad scene. Yeah. I don't think the movie okay. has a bad scene for a movie that was no, made in 1944. Really, no. And where they're working with a, a plot that's very like you know confusing and confusing because they have to work around the Hayes Code. I think the problem here is the Hayes Code and the fact that they decided to reshoot the film and they needed to wait two years to release the movie because of the war. So that's kind of like unfortunate for the people that are making the movie. But I don't want to knock points from the movie and the filmmakers because there's a war. A B the producers delay the movie and C they need to refilm scenes because yeah. the actress wants to be a big, huge diva and it's... be in the spotlight. Well, uh, I don't really know. Like, okay, I, I don't think we need to do, like, who's the audience for this thing going forward. I personally don't think there will be an audience. I think The Big Sleep will eventually fade into oblivion. I'm not sure this is a movie I don't... will live. Well, you know what, you're... though? Okay, here's the thing. I'm shocked that no one's made a fan edit of this movie because you know what this movie could use. And it's something I normally do not like in movies unless it's a film noir. And that is narration, a little bit of voiceover to help move things along, explain what's going on, and maybe take both edits and make a new edit. You could actually steal... You could steal his his voice work, his his lines from the DA office scene where he does deliver a lot of exposition, telling the DA what's going on, and you could use that as narration somewhere else. I have to say, I think the the main audience for this film going forward is going to be film students, like people who are studying the history of film, because it is it's it's one of those movies that is more important than it is great. Yeah, but I think it's more for actors. I think if you're an actor or you want to be an actor, you should watch this movie. Yeah, what would you learn like from Howard Hawks' style? Hawks' style is very, you know, it's hard to, to pin down completely. He, he's not somebody that likes a lot of flourish, and this movie does not have a lot of visual no, flourish. No, it's, it's not necessarily from a stylistic perspective. It could be some if you're interested in, 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 in the time period, if you're interested in the star system. It's all about the fundamentals. Worked. He's sort of like, I'm going to use a sports analogy here. He's sort of like Kevin Durant. He's like, maybe the second if not the greatest basketball player on earth but he's not flashy he doesn't do these crazy 360 dunks but he could score 50 points in one game it's all about just the fundamentals getting the job done and getting the job done well but not trying to razzle dazzle the audience and getting lost in the motion picture in the story and yeah. the thing the thing the thing is like when you chose this movie i was like trolling you on slack and I was trying to like make it seem like I was like really upset. I mean, I like the movie enough to watch it again. I mean, I watched it twice this week. It's just that it's not my favorite film noir, but when it comes to when it comes to movies directed by Howard Hawks, I was so hoping if you were to choose a Howard Hawks movie, you might have chosen something else. Well, we did his girl Friday. I will be choosing the thing from another world at some point in time because I really oh, do sick. like that movie. I've never seen that. I'm stoked. Oh, I'm so, okay. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a fun movie. It's a lot of fun, um, but yeah, I do still. Uh, this is a, the Bogey and Bacall movie. I know there's there's several others that are that are good as well, but I 
I really do like this movie. I think this movie is, is zips along. It's a pretty good time. I don't find it to be a slog. Um, but yeah, I can, I can definitely, I would never say that this is one of the greatest film noirs. Um, like I said, I even quibble with that description of it a little bit, but, but I, I like it enough and it was its 75th anniversary. And I thought that that was a good enough time to revisit it. I, I, this isn't, this doesn't go down as like one of my favorite movies from that era. I like it. And I think it's worth looking at. I would say that anybody, if film students do end up watching this, this Howard Hawks staging is what to me makes him so good like he he does know where to put actors in the camera there's some great shots like in the house where um bogart is with uh carmen marlo's with carmen and in the bot in the background is the or i'm sorry bogart bogart's in the house by himself but in the background on lying on the floor is carol the the guy that he like the 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 lover of geiger mm-hmm. who he just beat up at the front of the house when they get into their little their little stupid punch match his one punch knockout. He always yeah. uses yeah. The, he always uses the triangle system that a lot of photographers use and filmmakers. Stanley Kubrick was famous for using it too, right? That's that's what Howard Hawks does when he when he frames his his shots. Yeah, and it looks great, and it's something that people, I think, a lot of filmmakers could still benefit from just from learning it, um, because it does make things look very interesting. Hawks is just good at staging. His camera does not do a whole lot. It's mostly his it staging. Really doesn't, yeah. What is the best film that Lauren Bacall has starred in? That Lauren Bacall has starred in. Oh, is it boy. The Big Sleep? Simon? I think it. I, I think it's she... Dog. It's Dogville. Yes. <laughs> yes. You're right, Simon. Yes. It's Dogville. Thank you. <laughs> I love when I get the right answer. <laughs> what a career! God damn. Um, it's funny because like she was in Howl's Moving Castle, Birth, yes. Manderley. I was thinking Key Largo. I was going another Key Largo's a really good one, but she was in Dogville. It's, uh, the point I'm trying to make here is she's been in some really great movies in the past like 20 years for someone who got her start way back in the early 40s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she had remarkable uh, career stamina for sure. Yeah, definitely. Do you know how old she was when she, I don't know if it's when she filmed the movie or when she met Bogey, but she was 19. Oof. Yeah, there was a huge. So she was like roughly twenty yeah. twenty one, if not younger, when making this movie, which and seems about like, right because he was both... what like forty eight or something. He was forty seven. Forty seven, playing yeah. a thirty, a very rough looking thirty eight year old. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he looks uh, rough think... for his actual age, let alone thirty eight. I have a hard time picturing Humphrey Bogart as like a twenty something year old man. So. I... <laughs> <laughs> he just I'd prefer to think that he always looked like that. Yeah. All right. We should probably wrap things up then. Uh Simon, you still offline? Are you doing anything? Podcasting thing? Anything you ready to announce? Uh no, not quite yet. But okay. um later. Gotcha. Soon. All right. And Rick, where can everybody find you and the podcast and Goombastomp? Well, you can find the podcast over at sortedcinema.com. It will redirect you to the main website, which is Goombastomp. But the point is sortedcinema.com. As far as the social media channels go, it's Sorted Cinema on Twitter and Facebook. And we sort of have an Instagram account, but I'm not really using it just yet. But the point is, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, listen to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon. It's everywhere. And all the links, once again, are over at SortedCinema.com. You know what? You can also check out Edgar's Film Noir column on the website. And he actually has a review of The Big Sleep. So just go Mm -hmm. to the website and and uh search the big sleep he writes howard hawks's the big sleep earns a tepid recommendation 
Yeah, and, he wasn't. Uh, I read that article. He wasn't a huge fan of it. He acknowledges some of the the you know finer points, but which I completely understand. I completely understand. Anyway, uh, that's our show for this week. Next week we're going to be back with something a little more modern. I think uh, we're going to see the new Suicide Squad. We'll see you then. Well, how'd you happen to pick out this place? Maybe I wanted to hold your hand. Oh, that can be arranged. <laughs> what do you want to see me about? Well, one thing, my father was very pleased when he saw the morning papers. So was I. Yes, we were lucky. I managed to keep the Sternwoods out of it. He hopes you didn't involve yourself too deeply. You tell him it was no fault of yours? <laughs> no. He asked me to give you a check. I don't need any money yet. He considers the case closed. Oh? It is, isn't it? Well, as far as Geiger's concerned, yes. Then it's completely closed. I hope this is satisfactory. 500? Well, that's a lot more than I expected, but welcome just the same. We're very grateful to you, Mr. Marlowe, and I'm very glad it's all over. Tell me, uh, what do you usually do when you're not working? Mm. Play the horses, fool around. No women. Oh, I'm generally working on something most of the time. Could that be stretched to include me? Well, I like you. I told you that before. I liked hearing you say it. Hmm. But you didn't do much about it. Well, neither did you. Well, speaking of horses, I like to play them myself. But I like to see them work out a little first. See if they're front runners or come from behind. Find out what their whole card is. What makes them run. Find out mine? I think so. Go ahead. I'd say you don't like to be rated. You like to get out in front, open up a lead, take a little breather in the back stretch, and then come home free. You don't like to be rated yourself. I haven't met anyone yet that could do it. Any suggestions? Well, I can't tell till I've seen you over a distance of ground. Got a touch of class, but... Uh... I don't know how, how far you can go. A lot depends on who's in the saddle. Go ahead, Marlow. I like the way you work. In case you don't know it, you're doing all right. There's one thing I can't figure out. What makes me run? Uh-huh. I'll give you a little hint. Sugar won't work. It's been tried. Well, what'd you try it on me for? <laughs>